The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. I'm going to take a break from our study of Romans this morning in special celebration of this resurrection Lord's Day. John chapter 20. As you're turning there, I, I want to ask a simple question that we find asked and answered in this text. And that is, where is Jesus? It's an odd question to ask for someone who was publicly crucified. It's an odd question to ask of someone or about someone who was confirmed dead. The proper answer to that for most people, most people would be in the cemetery, in a tomb, in a casket, in a graveyard. And yet the entire Christian faith is built on, and Paul the Apostle affirms that it is made or broken on the reality of a belief in the historicity of the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead after confirmed being dead. Bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the one who is seen growing up in Nazareth, traveling around Galilee and down into Jerusalem, without qualification, is the most important event in the history of man. Now, some would argue that his death was the most important day, and who could argue against that, only to say that his death without the resurrection is just a sad story of a miracle worker who met to a bad fate. It's unlikely that you're going to find anyone in our culture who's not at least heard of the resurrection. It's become the stuff of legend, sometimes the stuff of mythology. But for many who are Christians, unfortunately, the resurrection lacks relevance where the world, it looks at the resurrection and it lacks credibility. How can we possibly say that this happened, the world asks, but I think the church should ask what possible massive impact should it have and does it really matter? Now, when you read the, the story of the, the last week of Jesus and you couple that with the previous description and discussions he had had with the, um, the disciples, you, you understand that this should have been seen coming, but it wasn't. The question of whether it did happen all the way, goes all the way back to the first generation who witnessed this event. There were conspiracy theories from the very day that Jesus rose from the dead. Just listen as I read Matthew chapter 28, verse 11 and following. Now when they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Remember, these guards, these centurions, saw angels, felt an earthquake. They fell as dead men in fear of what had happened. They knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus had risen from the dead, accompanied by indescribable phenomenon, seeing these angels, we sang it earlier, clad in white that was whiter than any bleach could have made their clothes. So they came and reported to the chief priests who were responsible for Jesus' murder, said, you're not going to believe this, but everything we were afraid might happen, happened. Remember, they put guards over the, the tomb to make sure that 
the disciples wouldn't come and steal Jesus' body and fake the resurrection. So they had to come up with a plan. When they assembled, Matthew says, with the elders, they consulted together. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They bribed them and said, you are to say, they gave them the narrative, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, there's a problem. To fall asleep on guard was a capital offense for a Roman centurion. You could be executed for that. So they're being told this story by the chief priest, and they're thinking, hang on, if we tell people they stole his body while we're asleep, we're going to be in trouble. Chief priest said in verse 14, if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And then Matthew puts this little footnote in. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. That first conspiracy that the disciples stole away his body was the first lack of credibility associated with the resurrection. Now, that didn't play so well when there were over 500 witnesses to his resurrection. But for Christians, the issue is not the credibility of the resurrection. The issue for us is the relevance of the resurrection. For many believers... It sounds like an ending of a Steven Spielberg movie with John Williams' score playing uh, with a crescendo in the background. I want to suggest to you, though, that the belief in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a game changer. It's a life changer. If it is true, it changes everything. Because it is true, we have to ask if it has changed anything. If Jesus is alive, after being crucified, after being stabbed in the side to confirm his death, and yet he is alive, that should rock our world. We should ask the question, where is Jesus? You might be surprised to discover that there's more said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament than there is about his death. As we read earlier in Acts chapter 2, the very first sermon centered on one important, relevant piece of fact and historicity, that Jesus rose from the dead. You crucified him according to God's predetermined plan, according to his foreknowledge, but you crucified him, he was confirmed dead, and he rose from the tomb. It was the subject of that first sermon, the subject of so much writing in the New Testament. The question becomes, how important is the resurrection to you, to to me? To answer that, I think we can look into this really amazing, can I even say charming, description of the understanding of the resurrection here in John chapter 20. A little background. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Uh, and Luke have already been written. It's been about three decades, about 30 years since those gospels have been circulated. So the facts of the the resurrection have been circulated, had been witnessed, had been been attested to by, by many for now three decades. When John writes his gospel, he steps back and he adds details we didn't know from the others. He adds theological insight we didn't perceive from the others. He, he gives a unique angle. In fact, John is, by all accounts, Jesus' best friend on the earth. Over and over, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved at the Last Supper. You see one person leaning against Jesus' chest. 
and lordship and an affection, and it's John. So when John records the events of the resurrection, I find it striking and interesting. John chapter 20 is that case. All I want to do is go over this narrative with you and make some notes and then uh, draw some implications because of this narrative. By the way, this, if I, as I said, this should have been known. This should not have been a surprise. I, I can't help but just give you a couple of passages. Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer things, many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, be killed, and after three days rise again. Is there any part of that sentence that is not easy to understand? He goes on, Mark 9, chapter 30, chapter 9, verse 30. From there they went out and began to uh, teach throughout Galilee. He was teaching the disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. And then Mark says, but they did not understand the statement. And they were afraid to ask. Isn't that interesting? Hey, well, how would it sound to you if I told you, next week I'm going to die, three days later I'm going I'm to rise from the, from the grave? You would say, well, you probably wouldn't be afraid to ask me, but they were afraid to ask Jesus. What in the world is he talking about? Mark 10, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem from Jericho, Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed because they knew he was walking into trouble. He said, behold... Going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him, and three days later he will rise again. That's pretty clear language, but the Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. Well, we find out exactly what he was talking about and what happened in John's account 30 years after the synoptics. Look at John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, that was Sunday morning. That was the end of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the the, the last day, which was Saturday. The Sabbath ended on that Saturday night. It began on the... the, uh, uh, on the darkening on Friday night began and, and, and began then and ended on the morning of the first day of the week. They had postponed to put off coming to, to prepare the body to make sure that the, the body, which was laid in a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had given, uh, had been properly uh, treated according to Jewish customs, had spices that were applied. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark. She was on her way. Luke tells us she arrived, arrived there shortly after dawn. And she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, what's interesting is we don't find a whole lot about the condition of the soldiers right now, which the other gospel writers tell us. Now, Mary Magdalene, instantly when we find Mary Magdalene, we have to just make a few notes. Mary Magdalene has has suffered the ignominy of of so much wrong abuse over the the centuries. Many people think Mary Magdalene was was a, a saved prostitute. There is nothing in the gospel accounts which indicate that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That was pure tradition that came about against this poor woman who was delivered by Jesus from seven demons. But nowhere do we have any account that she was any way immoral in that way. She'd been a follower of Jesus since he had driven the demons out of her. And again, no biblical evidence exists that she was 
a prostitute. She had been holding vigil uh, uh, around the tomb, probably not able to get very close because those Roman centurions were serious about uh, guarding that, that tomb. She and some other women. So we find, we, met, we find these other women basically referred to in verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and said to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Remember, she had just seen it from afar. We, that's we, and by the way, the we there is a group of women, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and maybe another woman or two were there with her. We do not know where they have laid him. So she comes, sees the tomb open, she's able to see inside, know that there was no one there, and began to run where she should have ran to Jesus' men, the disciples, especially to Simon Peter, and report what had happened. It's very interesting as a term of historicity that she comes to Peter first and John, Peter being the obvious leader of the disciples. Hey, they've taken the Lord away. You can imagine the despair. Not only had they lost their Lord to death, now they've taken his body. What were they going to do? So Peter and the other disciple went forth. You'll find out in a minute. In an unofficial race with each other. To get to the tomb. They were going to the tomb. The two were running together. I love this. And the other disciple... John's speaking about himself. He doesn't want to say, I was faster than Peter, but we find out he was faster than Peter here. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. You had to think that later on, John had to say, dude, I, I left you in the dust going on the way to the tomb. They come to the, he came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in. Now, I don't want to take too much archaeological time here to, to talk about this, but there are two supposed tombs in uh, Jerusalem that, that are, are given credit for having been the tomb where Jesus was laid. One is called the garden tomb. Uh, it's something that's very high. You can walk in. You can look around. There's a rolling stone uh, that, that comes in a groove that would have been easy to, to, to imagine having uh, been the place of Jesus' death. In all likelihood, that was not the place, both historically, because that's not where uh, we think that the graveyard was, where Joseph of Arimathea would have, uh, have bought that, that grave. But even biblically, that tomb you walk into, this one was small. Now, this is unfortunately in, uh, buried in a church that's been put on top of it, in a, um, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it's, it's exactly like this says. It's something you would have to get down on your knees to look into, and this is proof. They stooped to look in, and this is remarkable what they saw. By the way, the Romans have run by now. You see that they're nowhere around. They stooped to look in and they saw linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. I don't want to take the time to try to discredit the Shroud of Turin, but this indicates that these were wrappings, that they, almost like a mummy, they would wrap the body. It wasn't one sheet that went top and bottom. By this time, John has peeked in, and so Simon Peter also comes following him and entered the tomb. Peter doesn't stoop in. He climbs in. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And this, uh, this is so interesting to me. And the face cloth, John notices this, and it's remarkable that the other writers don't. 
And the face cloth, which had been on his head, was not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Jesus made his bed. Now, we could go off on high school students there, say even the Jesus, when he left, he took, rolled it up. That's not the point of this, but I do think it's very interesting that Jesus, he tidied up. He rolled his face cloth up and put it in the corner. That was so important to John. So the other disciple who had first come in the tomb then also entered in. So imagine seeing there, there's this little cave that was probably about three or four feet off of the ground. It went back into a tomb. John's looking in there. Peter, being slow, comes to the the tomb after John, pushes him aside, goes right in. Now John comes in with him. The other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered. That's John. Don't underestimate the last part of this verse. And he saw and believed. What I find interesting in the rest of the narrative of John, he doesn't spike the ball and say, see, I I believe before anyone else did. John seems to have some notion now of what was going on. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They didn't have all their theology in line. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. You say, why didn't they go looking for the body? We're going to find out in a minute. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so, as she wept, She stooped and looked into the tomb. Now, this is interesting. The disciples were there, John and Peter. Mary was standing outside, probably slower to get to the tomb. They were very aware of their surroundings. No one had walked up during this encounter. She looks in after the other two go, and look what happens. Look what she sees. And she saw, weeping, she's looking in, two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. If you've ever been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you've looked into this tomb, you understand that they were probably sitting Indian style probably sitting down. Uh, they, they, they couldn't have been standing. They were sitting and one at the head and one at the, at the foot. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, do you think the angels understood why she was weeping? They're soliciting a response so they can answer her grief. And she said to them, Because... They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She wanted to go find the body to continue to anoint it with those expensive spices. And when she said this, she must have heard something. She turned around. Now, back later at the house, when they're debriefing with all this, you've got to think when Mary tells them what she's about to see, that John and Peter said, we left too soon. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know 
that it was Jesus. A lot of speculation was he, did he have a hood on? Did he have, uh, was he turning, facing another way? Was he, was he, uh, uh, did he look different because of the resurrection? I lean toward that. He certainly didn't look like he had looked on the cross. She sees him and there's no recognition. So Jesus engages her. Woman, why are you weeping? This poor lady can't get away from answering the question. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, which tells us that he wasn't in that white array that the angels were. She just thought this is the guy coming to take care of the tombs. Sir, she says to him, if you have carried him away, tell me. She implores him, please tell me, where have you laid him? Verse 16 is interesting. Because the way Jesus simply says her name, she knew immediately who it was. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. I don't know how it was inflected. I don't know what was, how it was said. But however it was said, look at what, what happens. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. She instantly recognized that that was Jesus by the simple way he said her name. There's a lot of play on the, the voice of God in the book of Revelation, that we recognize his voice. Now, what happens between 16 and 17 is not hard to speculate. She doesn't stay in the tomb. She's not stooping anymore, looking at the angels. She's not looking over her shoulder at this guy she thinks is the gardener. Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me. What do you think she's done? She has stood up and embraced the Lord. Don't miss the fact that this was in the ancient Near East, a majorly significant impropriety. She knew he was the Lord. She had honored him as the Lord. She had loved him as Lord. There's no indication that she had ever resorted to hugging and clinging to the Lord during his pre-crucifixion time on the earth. My speculation here is that she was unable to contain her overwhelming joy to go from the fact that he had been dead crucified. Was he really who he said he was? How could this possibly happen? What did the people do with my Lord's body? How am I to honor his, his memory by not even being able to find him? What have they done to go from that grief to him standing there saying your name? You understand how she would have run, jumped up, and embraced him. And I just love Jesus. He says, easy, easy. Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. This isn't the end, but go to my brethren. Go to the disciples and say to them, I ascend to my Father. There are two plural pronouns in verse 17. And if you're an underliner or a circler in your Bible, these are precious, precious pronouns. I ascend to my Father. Then what does he say? 
and your father and my God and, see it again, your God. Do you see what he's communicating? Remember the prayer he asked in John 17, just a few hours before this time? Lord, I long that where I am, they be with me to, to, to see your glory. I am in you, you, they are in me, we are in you. This unmitigated solidarity, he accents that again. Your Father, your God. Now, verse 17 to 18 don't indicate, between the ver- verses there, there's, no, there's, there's some white space. It doesn't tell us how far they went back, how she had to run back to talk to the disciples. But I can assume that she scooted pretty fast. Jesus somehow disappears. He goes away. We know that because she is not bringing the Lord in tow with her. You can imagine she would have wanted to grab his hand and say, come with me. Jesus disappears. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. That could have been perceived as, I found his body, but she goes on. And that he said these things to her. Do you see the resurrection in verse 18? I've seen the Lord, and he said, code words for, he is alive. Now, a question we have to ask is, where are these men? They were all in hiding they were scared to death. Oh, the women were following, from Je- following Jesus from afar, watched the crucifixion. Uh, tradition tells us Mary, his mother, being there. They had probably been uh, holding vigil, a little uh, stone's throw from the tomb. Where were these men? Well, imagine their thought. If they just did this to our leader, what will, uh, who, who is who's raised the dead, performed miracles, healed people, had all power. If they did that to him, if they find us, what do you think they're going to do to us? So when it was evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is Sunday night now, and when the doors were shut, John makes the point twice in this passage that Jesus will appear to them with no access. Trust me, they had locked the doors. Why? Where the doors were shut, where the disciples were, here it is, for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst. He, in his resurrected body, and we we find out some clues about this resurrection body that we'll share with him, he was able to materialize out of thin air in their room. Remember, the door was shut. There was no back door. And trust me, they were watching the windows. There's a man standing in the room out of nowhere. And you would understand why Jesus would say, peace be with you. I can imagine all the hands went to the swords. I can imagine they stood up. They were going to take this guy on. Is this a a slave of the high priest who's come to, to rat us out, to take us and arrest us? Jesus immediately says, Easy, peace be with you. And before they have to ask, who are you and how did you get there? Verse 20 should give you uh, much more compassion for Thomas. We'll see in a minute. We call him Doubting Thomas. 
Well, Thomas expressed his doubt. Jesus assumes the disciples' doubt. And when he had said this, he immediately shows them both his hands and his sides. Thomas would ask for that. Jesus assumed the disciples, the other ten, needed to see that. The disciples then, the Greek is emphatic, it was at that point, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now, there's a scurrying that happens between verse 20 and 21. We don't know all the details, but, but, but something happens for, the, for Jesus to have to say. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, easy, calm down. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. There's the very first aspect of the Great Commission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? Remember in John 14, 15, 16, 17, when Jesus prays about this coming of the Spirit, promises the coming of the Spirit, this was all about their empowerment to carry the gospel out, not about their, their personal worship, not about their private experience with the Holy Spirit. This was all about being missionaries. He had just told them, I'm going to send you. So he gives them the Holy Spirit. They would need the Holy Spirit because they were a terrified group of men. Then he gives them the message. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. All in the context of telling them that Jesus saves and Jesus forgives sins. Now John tells us something that's very important for this next little scene. We saw Jesus with Mary. We saw Jesus with the disciples. Now we're going to find Jesus with Thomas. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, he was a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. I don't know where Thomas was. When I get to heaven, I want to say, Thomas, where were you that night? Maybe he had been sent out to get dinner. We don't know. Jesus had appeared to these ten, probably with the women, and Thomas was not there. So the other disciples were saying to him, Thomas comes back to the room. We've seen the Lord. Thomas says, well, that's interesting, but unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There's a lot in there. First of all, Thomas, by all accounts, was not there at the crucifixion. So these details over the last 48 hours had been communicated and articulated. Then John goes out of his way in verse 26 to say, after eight days. Again, we speculate in between those two verses the conversations that must have taken place between these 10 and Thomas. Thomas, no, really, we saw him. In fact, he wasn't there, and we turned around, and he was there. Mary's saying, I, I, I saw this guy I thought was the gardener, and, and then he spoke to me, and the way he said Mary, he affirmed that he was teacher, the Lord, and then he told me to go tell them. And they're telling them all this, and he's going, um, what have you been drinking what have you been thinking? After eight days, his disciples were again inside 
And John tells us, and Thomas with them. Jesus came. And John goes out of his way again to say, the doors having been shut, he just materializes out of nowhere and stood in their midst and obviously says, calm down, peace be with you. Jesus had not been with the disciples when they had had the conversation with, with, with uh, Thomas, where Thomas had said, I, I, need, I need proof. I need to feel those wounds. I need to see them with my own eyes, feel them with my own hands. Jesus had presupposed the disciples, the other 10, needed proof and showed them those wounds. I don't know why we're so hard on Thomas, who asked to see them himself. And he said to Thomas, remember, he hadn't been there showing Jesus omniscience that he is God. He says, reach here with your finger and see my hands, obviously holding his hands out. And reach here your hand and put it into my side, obviously bearing his outer garment and showing them his chest. Put it into my side. The Greek text here is so wonderful. And the, the English almost gets the force of it. And do not be unbelieving. Isn't that a double negative? And then he answers with the, the, the positive. But believing. Don't be in the state of your unbelief. You're in a position where you don't believe this. Stop being that way. Now enter into this position, this disposition of believing, understanding that this is true. We have no indication that Thomas took Jesus' invitation. We don't know that he touched the Lord, but we do know what he says. This is absolutely imperative for Christians to hear uttered from the lips of Thomas. He said to him, and we would expect him to say this first phrase, my Lord, Curious, my master. He had called him that before. But look at what he says, my Lord and my God. The disciples who had sat wondering what Jesus was talking about back on Thursday night with this Last Supper and Jesus was saying all these things to them. I'm going to go. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again. What, what, what? They went from not understanding the events and not understanding what Jesus was saying to understanding what had just happened and understanding that Jesus was not just sent from God but this is after, absolute affirmation of the incarnation. Thomas says, you are God. And then you almost sense Jesus' smile here. He almost says, really? He says, that because you've seen me, have you believed? You think this is a big deal because you've seen my wounds and you believe? You, you think that's, that's a big deal. Watch this. Now he's going to talk about you and me. Blessed are they who did not see, who will not see, who cannot see because he's not here physically and yet believed. You understand Jesus is talking about us. 
After affirming Thomas in his confession of him as God and Lord, after confirming Thomas in his understanding that he was Jesus who had been crucified, he kind of pats him on the head and says, you, you think it's a big deal for you to believe? Blessed are those who will believe having never seen what I've shown. If you fast forward the tape to Revelation, we will be there when the Jews look on the, the one whom they had, what's the text say, pierced. Telling us what I heard a junior high youth speaker say when I was at a camp a long time ago. He asked us as a group of junior hires, he says, what's the only man-made thing in heaven? And we thought about, well, is it the pearly gates because there's pearls? No. Is it gold? No. We went up, and then finally he said this, the only man-made thing in heaven are the scars on Jesus' body. He will forever be the lamb who was slain. We will always know that he died for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquity. We will always remember by virtue of his simple scars that we were redeemed with precious blood as of the only begotten. Blessed are you, he says. Listen, you are blessed by God if you believe these events and never witness them. Do you believe? Will you believe? Is this history to you? Is this fact to you? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we don't have the resurrection, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we of all men are to be pitied. We just believe in a crucified Messiah hung between two criminals. John goes on to finish the chapter. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. It's almost a tease. I could tell you a whole lot more than he did, but I'm not going to. It's almost an invitation to find me in heaven, and we'll talk about all the stuff that we, he did and I saw. But these have been written. What he's recorded has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. First and foremost, because he rose from the dead, the Son of God. And I love the last part of verse 31. And that in the state of believing, being a believing one, you may have life in his name. The resurrection doesn't just provide for us salvation in the past. It provides for us a way and a means to understand, interpret, and live life Today, So what are the implications? There are hundreds. But can I just identify four with you? The first is this. The fact of Jesus' resurrection gives me hope for mine. The fact of Jesus' resurrection gives me <coughs> hope for mine. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1. He says, blessed to be... The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, he will raise those who believe in the gospel from the dead and give them life everlasting in heaven with him before the Father. Paul even says in Philippians 3, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead because he rose from the dead. The fact of his resurrection gives me hope 
for mine. He inaugurated a way, Hebrews says. He made a way for us to come to God. How? After death, through the resurrection, to come to be with him. If you believe that you, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, will die and not be dead. Will lose life, but gain a better life. Will shed this, Paul calls it an earthly tent, a tent that you live in, and put on the imperishable, unable to sin, not distracted by the cares and the worries of this world. All because Jesus did it for us and first. As Peter said, that should give us hope. If you believe that you're going to rise from the dead, what can this world do to you? Remember Luke 12, Jesus has this interesting play with the disciples. It's just, you can see them scratching their heads. (coughs) He says, don't fear man. Don't, don't fear the one who can, who can kill you. And you can see the disciples kind of saying, what? Don't fear the ones who can kill me? He says, I tell you, fear the one who can take your life and then put you into judgment into hell. I tell you, fear him. If you fear him, there's no fear of that judgment. We have hope. We don't grieve for those who've lost quote unquote, their battle with whatever disease on this earth. We don't grieve like unbelievers. That's an on-ramp to heaven. A second implication, the power of his, resurrection, of his resurrection gives me power, get this, power to actually fight sin. Think about how much power it took to take a corpse that was lying beginning to rot and reanimate blood cells to reanimate muscles and tissue. If, if that is possible, and I don't mean if as a possibility, since that is possible, what kind of power does that preclude? We'll get here in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8. You know what it says? If God can do that with a human body, what can God do with your soul when it comes to fighting sin? You know what the answer is? You can win. You don't have to bow the knee to sin. The power of repentance is saying, Lord, you have the power of being raised from the dead, resurrection power. I now ask you, please give me the power to fight this sin. Romans 6, 8 to 14, Romans 8, 9 to 11, talk about that power. Number three, the result of his resurrection gives us hope beyond death, as we just said. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, uh, 50 to 58, say, death, where's your sting? Paul actually mocks death, and he says, really? You think this is painful? You think this hurts? You think this is a sting? No power. Based on what? Because there's life after the grave. And then fourthly, a fourth implication. 
is the belief in his his resurrection. (laughs) Go to Romans 4. You have to see this. It actually provides and gives and makes the basis for our justification. This is where salvation is actually rooted. Romans chapter 4. This is remarkable. We've covered this very briefly in our series on Romans, but this is really the launching point for all Christian living. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus gives me justification before God. In Romans 4, remember this is talking about Abraham. Abraham was justified by his faith, therefore we can be justified by faith as well. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited, belief, faith, was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now, not only for his sake, that's Abraham's, was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Do you see it? He who's delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. He was raised because of our justification. You know what that means? Now, don't throw me out as a heretic when I say this. The cross wasn't enough without the resurrection. The resurrection was him, God saying, I put my stamp of approval. He says back in in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Oh, the cross is important, but the cross is validated by the resurrection. We should love the cross, sing of the cross, but Aaron and I were talking recently about there's, there's, not an, there's not enough hymns in the hymnal and songs about the resurrection. I want to challenge you, the next time you read the book of Acts, just read the book of Acts this week and just underline and put a tick or, or a mark, underline or put out in the margin every time the resurrection is referenced. You're going to run out of ink. Paul stood before four different councils. You know why he stood before those councils? He stood before those councils being accused of this grand heresy on behalf of the Jews that God would raise the dead. That's what he stood on trial for. So, do you believe the good news that God raised Jesus from the dead and offers life abundantly in this world, eternally in the next, justifies the ungodly if you will believe that he did that. Do you believe? Will you believe? Let me say it as simply as possible. Your eternal destiny is determined by what you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Will you bow with me? The resurrection was witnessed by over 500 people. It's said that there's more evidence historically for the resurrection of Jesus than for the crossing of the Delaware by George Washington. The historicity is one thing. Do you 
grasp it? Do you believe it spiritually? Is it your hope and stay? In a few minutes, we're going to sing. And after that, the prayer room will be open to my right. If you have any questions, if that's confusing to you, please come and see us. Let us pray with you. Let us talk to you. We would love to do that with you. And for those of us too, who believe, take comfort. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe not only in my death, but in my resurrection, and they did not see it. That's a sweet place to be in the direct blessing of our Lord. Father, on this Easter day, I, I beg that you make our affections toward you because of the fact that Jesus is alive, interceding for us at the right hand of your throne. He is somewhere right now in the flesh, and we believe that and cause us to hope in the hope of resurrection power for ourselves, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.